Um, climate change, I understand the topic is climate change. Homer Simpson couldn't care less what the Christians say and frankly he hardly made a finer Christian than Homer Simpson so we have to be with him. Um, presumably Christians have something to say which is why we've called this event a bit of short talk otherwise, nothing to say really. Um, there's a bloke at our church who, who just finished at uni here um, a few months back and then he got a job in 2GB. Now 2GB, some of you won't know, that's a funny old fashioned radio station, it's an AM station, it's got people like Alan Jones as uh, their champagne sort of people, so it's, um, and here's what, here's what um, Tom said, he said, it's been amazing because he works in the, news, in the news department, I get to hear his dulcet tones now occasionally, when I listen to it just to hear the other half think, but um, he said, it's amazing because I went from uni where Everybody I knew, everybody believed in climate change. Everybody knew it was serious. Everybody, in fact, some people thought it was the most serious crisis that humanity had to deal with, that to fail to deal with it was to show a serious moral failure. Said to, oh, I haven't pushed that. There you go. <laughs> Could have gone forever. Um, said, and suddenly I meet this whole world of people, all of them a bit older, uh, he said, all of them really nice people, most of them very intelligent people, and he said, none of them seem to believe in climate change. All of them seem to be climate sceptics, and they all have really good arguments for it. And he said, it's kind of weird to go from one cocooned world and to leave that, and without knowing it, he's walked into another cocooned world on this very, very important topic. I take it when we use the word climate change because it can be used just more generally for the way in which the climate over the planet Earth has changed, which it clearly has, everyone knows that. Ice ages, when was coal made in Australia, when we were swampy and hotter, etc., etc. But it's this, the way we use climate change now is that it's an alarming, dangerous, anthro, anthropogenic climate change. That is, man has caused, or at least significantly contributed to, an alarming dangerous change in the climate, that it is probably changing faster than it has in the past, which will cause massive destruction to the life systems on the earth. Uh, there are some people who I've heard argue this is the single greatest threat mankind has ever faced and, as, as mentioned before, the greatest moral challenge. Now, that's been challenged. When at first that's, those statements were made a couple of years ago, people said, surely the thousands of children who have already died today, literally human beings just like yourself who have died, through completely preventable poverty, often just through bad water. Surely the thousands that have died this morning is more important than the possible danger which we've got chance to avert in the future. So there's some debate about that. I mean, as a disciple of Jesus, although I do think that the global warming is a terrible danger to us, uh, or climate change, if you want to call it that, I do think that mankind faces a far larger crisis than that, but it is certainly a large one. We won't have time to go through all the facts and figures. I, I toyed with that possibility of doing that. I've been reading again. And mother, my mother, I don't know, she's 80. She has nothing but read, I think, and have fun. She, she some time ago bought that um, Ian Plymer's book, The Great Skeptic Geologist, who he loves bagging Christians, etc. He wrote a book, Bagging Global Warming, Climate Change, and I read that and it was fairly persuasive. And I've nearly finished this one by Tim Flannery that my mother also got and read and said, you should read this one too, um, which is The Weathermakers. And it's been interesting reading it because it is, if you've read on both sides, it's kind of confusing because you get really intelligent people who 
aren't experts on the subject because it's such a new area, there aren't many real experts. Um, this guy's a, a biologist by training, that's his PhD, um, and an expert in fossils, and Plymer's a geologist, which is the background he comes to look at the question of climate change from. But it is confusing, and there are four areas people debate about. The fatness of it, that is, the quality of the data that's used to argue that, that the climate is changing more rapidly than it has in the past, and how do you interpret the data. The causes of it, that is, OK, let's assume that the, that the temperature is changing dangerously quickly, which actually looks fairly slow at one level in terms of the numbers, but the impact of one or two degrees over a century is substantial. Uh, the causes of it, is it caused by us? Is it caused by the sun? Do we just not know what the causes are, really? Are we just guessing? The factness, the causeness, the so whatness. I think one of the reasons why we no longer speak about global warming is that warming sounds nice, doesn't it? You know, like an ice age is kind of scarier than a thing getting warmer. I have a warm friendship with someone. That's better than getting a bit chilly. So warm's a positive thing, I think. So people have tried to get over the fact of, of the positive way in which that word can trick you. Does it really matter? Isn't warming good? Will it really be a catastrophe? Haven't we all been through this before? Isn't this just the way things are? So does it really matter? And then assuming that you think it's a fact and that it's caused by us, therefore maybe we can undo some of the causes, and assuming that we think the, the results are catastrophic, as they seem as if they will be, what's the best action? Because if I may quote two great heroes, Big Kev and uh, Big Malcolm, the leader of the opposition and the leader of the government, they, they both seem to be, at least what they speak about in public, genuine believers in climate change, as I've defined it, but they have a different view of how we should respond. What is actually the best way? Uh, what is the appropriate way? It does seem difficult to keep maintaining this thing isn't real. Uh, as far back as 2005, even George W. Bush signed with all the other members of the G8, that is the eight largest economies, the leaders signed a communique that said this, climate change is a serious and long-term challenge that has the potential to affect every part of the globe. We know that increased need and use of fossil fuels and other human activities contribute in large part to increases in greenhouse gases associated with the warming of our Earth's surface. While uncertainties remain in our understanding of climate science, we know enough to act now, to put ourselves on a path to slow and, as the science justifies, stop, then reverse the growth of greenhouse gases. So there's the political leaders of the eight largest economies saying, it's real. And we need to deal with it. Now, there's an argument, of course, as there isn't anything about how best to deal with it. So, firstly, why are we bothering about this? Because it does seem to be a real and threatening danger. Well, what do Christians say about this? Well, as you probably know, with almost any group, we, we say all sorts of different things. Um, atheists have got different positions on climate change. Uh, so in my own family, my brothers and sisters, uh, two of them who are very, very passionately, devotedly anti-Christian. Uh, one is an old left-wing hippie, although now owns blocks of land all over the place. I don't know if hippies are allowed to do that. But um, uh, that particular person is, surprise, surprise, a great passionate believer in global warming. Another member of the family, equally irreligious but differently irreligious, who works in large companies with IT and stuff like that, he is, surprise, surprise, a great mocker of global warming. And it is interesting watching the way in which people's view on this is not dissimilar to their views in other areas. 
their views of Western life and economy, etc. These things seem to play a part. So people of atheistic persuasion, agnostic persuasion, Hindu, etc., etc., will have different views on this. What do Christians say about this? Well, if I can just play a definitional game for a moment, and that is, when I use the word Christian, I'm going to try and use it in a way that I think the Bible means it, and that is, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus. A disciple means fundamentally a learner or an apprentice. So when I became a Christian at the age of 19, I got fairly bored with the question about, Ian, what do you think about? Because I'd worked out that what I think about something is, fair, is hardly relevant. I mean, who gives a damn what a... What, I mean, I'm sure you're much more educated than I was. What a 19-year-old Australian who's never been anywhere, has hardly read any serious literature. Uh, you know, what do I know about God? What do I know about life after death? What do I know about global warming? What do I know about global cooling, which was the concern in the 70s, that the whole thing was going to cool down? The self-evident running out of resources we were going to get by about the 1970s. It was the cleverest group on the world, the Club of Rome, told us we're all going to run out of resources by about the late 70s, and we didn't. I did a think, what do I know? I became a Christian, which meant I became a disciple of Jesus. That is, I think, well, what does he think? He's the master. He's the brainiac. He's the one who knows. I don't. I follow him because he's wiser, better, smarter, and he owns everything. But we'll come to that. So if you ask the question, what should Christians say? What would a genuine, authentic, thoughtful, reasonably well-educated Christian say, a disciple? Because in Romans 12 it talks about the Christians having been amazed by the grace and mercy and kindness of God and therefore we give ourselves to live with God. And the key thing he says is don't be conformed. Don't just be squeezed into the mould by your culture, which is what every single culture does to us. And the biggest twits of all are the people who think that they're not conformed by their culture... That's a very late 20th century, 21st century view. Hey, I think for myself from the ground up. Well done. That's just what the advertisers want you to believe. You be a non-conformist and drink this product. That's, you just want, it's, it's cute. Don't be conformed. Don't just be squeezed into the mould, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's the way forward. That's the way in which God changed, by changing the way that we think, by listening to the Master. So, so you ask, what does Jesus teach about climate change? Well, he teaches about as much about climate change as he teaches about rape, or about paedophilia, or about child sacrifice. Uh, yet we're not in a great deal of doubt about Jesus' view on that. Why? Because he speaks about areas very closely aligned to it. We pick up the values, the concerns. I don't know what Jesus thinks about paddle pops whether I should get my coffee from Gloria Jeans or somewhere else. I don't know the answer to those questions, but I get from Jesus much more substantial than that. Great, clear priorities, principles, values, for which I can then approach any issue that comes along. But one of the tricks with Jesus is to think this. If Jesus says nothing about it, he thinks nothing about it. And I don't want to get involved in another difficult issue, but in some of the issue about human sexuality, it's not uncommon for people to say... And this is a learnt argument. I learned it from Bishop Spong in the end. Uh, Jesus says nothing about homosexuality. And you've got to see, why does Jesus not say anything about child sacrifice? Or I don't want to put child sacrifice up with homosexuality. But, you know, a number of issues. The reason he doesn't say anything about them is because there's no debate about them in his culture. For about homosexuality, there was no debate in Jewish culture in the first century about homosexuality. There was no debate in first century culture about adultery. 
These things were understood. They had a common mind. That's why Jesus doesn't say anything about it. You know what Jesus thinks because Jesus assumes the Old Testament to be true. Right? So there are a whole series of subjects Jesus doesn't teach on it because there was common agreement. He was a first century Jew living amongst first century Jews. So if you read, for example, Matthew 29, Jesus says this. He's having an argument about what, the, what will happen when we're raised from the dead. He says this. Jesus replied, You are wrong. That's a rude thing to say, isn't it, about religion? You are wrong because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Have you not read what God said to you? I'm the, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So it's interesting, what, just to note what Jesus He quotes the book of Genesis. And he says this, Have you not read what God said to, not Moses, but what God said to you? It is Jesus' belief, and because I respect him and honour him, therefore it's my belief, that what Genesis says, God says, not just to the people of that day, but to you. Matthew 22, 29, verse 29. So does the Bible have anything or much to say about the environment, our place in it, our impact? Is it, how important is it? Uh, and of course you know the answer is truckloads. In fact, this is exactly where the Bible starts. Now you probably think that's where all religion starts. <coughs> Wrong. The view that the Bible has about the place of the physical creation is actually quite unique, particularly in its own day and when you compare it, say, to Buddhism and Hinduism in particular, Judaism and Islam, they're all related at this point. But uh, quite a different view to those. Let me, let me, so if you go back to Genesis, and I'm going to have to travel quickly here, otherwise my beep is going to go halfway through a sentence. In Genesis 1, the six-day thing, it's actually seven days, and people go wrong with Genesis because they don't realise the climax of the whole story is not the creation of man. Uh, Non-Christians often get this wrong. I hear them regularly on on Learned ABC, Radio National. It's not not man. It's the Sabbath. It's the seventh day. It's the day of rest. It's not actually just about... The sixth day is important, but the seventh day is where it all comes to a climax. On the sixth day... God has gone through and built the, the stories. He builds the universe with all its systems and all its things that interrelate, which gets picked up by some names called Gaia and all this sort of stuff. All that stuff, the interrelated systems, all come from God's hand. And again and again, God looks at what he makes and says, it's good. I like that. That's, that's great. He's, you know, he, he likes the physical world. Substantial, very significant. The standard view that many have, and this has, has actually polluted Christianity, is that the physical stuff's not good. If you're interested in spiritual stuff, it's not about the body. It's not about gristle and meat and trees and beautiful food and lovely wine. The Bible says, no, no, no. God made the whole lot and it's all good. Then he comes to the point in day six when he makes the animals. Verse 24, chapter 1. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. He lists them then. Cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth. Then God said, let us make man. So on the same days he makes all the other animals on the earth. He says, you know, he probably has lunch break. And then, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Quickly, 
So I had to travel so fast, but uh, you'll see. All very clever. Um, you introduce to God. God doing what? God creating. God making stuff. Physical stuff. I wish I had time to look at the, the, the Gnostics get a big rave in the Da Vinci Code and, and other fiction and nonsense like that. The Gnostics had this view that the real God didn't make the physical world because the physical was so messy. That was a secondary, substandard God made that. The real God made the spirit. Right? And the Bible says rubbish. The real God's into physical stuff. Matter matters to God. It's his idea. It's good. It comes from his hand. The environment comes from his hand. It's rhythms, it's abundance, it's beauty. It's interesting when you read Genesis 1 and 2, often the word beautiful, pleasing to the eye comes up. Things aren't just functional, but they're gorgeous to look at. And I hope you notice that uh, all around the place. The world is just full of beauty. Uh, I've been stuffed in a unit for the last week or so, uh, for a couple of weeks, right next to the water. Boy, if you don't fall on your knees in worship when you look at the water and the way the light plays, and even the way the light plays off the buildings across, the world is full. I mean, even this wood in this otherwise... Boring lecture room <laughs> is nice. And, you know, the green's nice and the blue's nice. And the world is full of pleasant stuff. <laughs> and uh, I won't keep, but, you know, enjoy that. So God is introduced as the maker of all this stuff. The environment is created and in the middle of it, man is made. He's part of it. In Genesis 2, it'll say God took the dust of the earth and then breathed life into it. They're both saying that man is part of the animal world. He's part of the physical world. We belong in it. But there is something distinct. It wasn't all made for him, that complete rubbish. I keep hearing people say Christians believe, which we don't believe. But we're animals. We're made from the dust, but we're given the breath of life in a way that is special. We're made in some way in his image, in his likeness. And then it's, it, it teases that in two ways, male and female. Some have suggested maybe part of the image of God is the sameness yet the difference which you see in the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Spirit, the capacity for relationship within the oneness. But more obvious is he says man is called to rule. Now one of the reasons why Christianity has been given a caning at times by the environmental movement, I remember seeing documentaries by Mr Suzuki and others, is because of this idea of man giving the job to rule. And that's because we've, we've brought up in a sinful world. I had these uh, women come to my house the other week uh, to help me pack the house up. And two of them arrived, and then a third one arrived, and I said, oh, look, another servant. And it was just a funny... She looked offended. We became friends after that. (laughs) And I thought, see, she lives in a different world to me. Servant, because I've been hanging around Christian stuff for about 30 years, servant is in a term of honour. God is a servant God. So when I call her servant, I'm not. She takes it because she's an ordinary Australian. I'm not a servant, right? Because so when we hear the word rule, we think of domination, crushing, despots. Right? We, that's, that's not the Bible is about rule at all. He's made in the image of God. Man and woman are made in the image of God. And how does God rule? Gently, kindly. He bleeds for those he leads. Right? So when the Bible says man is to rule, it, it defines rule. As care, as it will in chapter 2, it speaks about man being put in the garden to cultivate and keep it or to work it, serve it, care for it, to watch over it. It's a bit like if it's true that fathers lead households, if that is what God intends, what that means is you lead by loving, service, sacrifice, gentleness, kindness, doing the hard jobs, getting up at night when the baby cries. That's what leadership is according to the Bible. To rule is to be a shepherd that cares and tends. That's man's place. 
Al Gore has rightly said that the idea of Genesis 1 and 2 being used as an excuse to dominate and crush the creation, he said, is clearly wrong. The picture the Bible has is that man is placed as part of the creation, within the creation, to steward it, to look after it. Yes, to shape it. In the same way as if you, take, if you move into a house, you'll probably look at the backyard and think, I'm going to shape this backyard. You're probably not just going to let it grow whatever comes up. That is you ruling. That is you subduing. That's what the Bible means. That's the position of humans. So we live in God's environment with a path to play in it. Now in chapter 3 of Genesis we hear this terrible, tragic story which is the source of all your griefs in the end where the steward says to God, get stuff, keep out. I will live in your world my way. I will sometimes accidentally agree with you but generally speaking I'm not playing steward anymore. I'm living as owner in your world. In fact, I'm even going to call it my world. That's how I'm going to live. That is what the Bible means by sin. That is what infects your heart and my heart. It is what lies behind wars. It is what lies behind rape. It is what lies behind global warming. Is the fact that in the end, all of us, each of us, are addicted to having our own way. It is the very root and source of our problems. Does God care about the environment? Therefore, about climate change? More than you do. Does God care about how we should live, how we should respond to these problems? Deeply. Look, I'm living in an apartment at the moment for four weeks. I won't bore you with the details. It's great. I am more careful of not spilling coffee or red wine on the floor or on the lounge chairs than I would be in the house I used to live in, which is owned by the church, so I kind of felt at least half owned it. I don't own my own house. But you're more, if, you're, if you're half decent human being, you're more concerned when you're in someone else's place not to make a mess. Well, I, I think that's what a half decent... That's my conditioning, anyhow. Um, and that's how you live. You don't live in your world. You don't live in nobody's world. According to Jesus, you live in his father's world. And it matters to the owner how his apartment gets treated. It matters if we stuff it up. It matters if we cause the death, the unnecessary death of all these critters that he created. You know, we discovered this frog only about ten years ago that, that it's just so fantastic. He, she, she lays her eggs, she swallows the eggs, she does something clever with the acids in her tummy to make it a safe place for babies and the babies get born out of her mouth. And that we've got pictures of the mother frog with a little baby frog. It's gone, right? A result of our pollution. It's gone forever. God does all this wonderful work. We come on, pour a few chemicals in the wrong creek. Ah, gone. There is, I'm sorry to swear, but if I can, just pretend we're in America, where they use the word pissed to mean angry, we use it to mean drunk. Um, I heard this country music song some years ago and it said, Jesus is coming and boy is he pissed. Right? Now, I don't like the song, I don't like the word, but it had a sense to it. And I think there's a sense in which the owner is pretty pissed off about what's happened to his world. Does God care about it? You bet he cares about it. He thought of it, he invented it, he loves it. He gave us a job to do in it, and we turned into dominating crushes. So, for the Christian, for someone who says, Jesus, I'm with you, what matters to you matters to me. What doesn't matter to you doesn't matter to me. Do we care about global warming? Yes, Absolutely we care. The fundamental way in which Christians live is 
Trusting in God, loving our neighbour. They're the two things. One John. It's brilliant. Summarise the whole of Christ. We trust in God because he's trustworthy. We love our neighbour because God loves you. Or Jesus gets asked, what are the two great commandments? Love God, love your neighbour. If you love God, you care about what God cares about, don't you? God cares about his world. You cannot say, hey, I'm part of God's family, I'm on God's side, but I don't care about what God cares about. You have to care about what God cares about. Now, there are things that God, you may argue, have an even higher priority than the creation, but it does matter to God. Secondly, we'll love our neighbour. Just to run a hypothetical, if it was true that you became utterly, totally, thoroughly evidence-based convinced that there was no such thing as climate change, you'd still have to take it seriously. Do you know why? Because if you love someone who's anxious and fearful, you will take their angst and fear seriously. That's what loving people do. So even if you think it's not even right, you'll take their fears seriously. And some of you know there are whole generations of children growing up as fearful as the kids in the 50s and 60s grew up thinking they were going to be wiped out by a nuclear holocaust. And that, that needs to be taken seriously. It does look... In, in all the likelihood that global warming is actually correct and climate change is happening, 60 million people in Bangladesh look almost certain to lose their homes and their farms. 60 million within the next 50 years. And the Bible says if you don't love your neighbour, you don't know God and you will answer before God for that. Micah chapter 6 says, He has shown you what he requires of you to love justice, to do mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We have to care about what's happening in God's world. It will damage people and as you know it will almost certainly damage those least able to protect themselves. Rich people like us will probably get by but the poorest and the most vulnerable will lose and lose big time. You know already there are refugees in New Guinea who've lost their islands. I was talking with a guy who does a lot of research in that area. They've lost it not because the ice caps have melted, but because the sea has got warmer. You make the sea warmer, it takes up more volume, and what's happened is the tides are a tiny bit higher, the occasional big waves are a bit bigger, so they've lost their fresh water because salt water has got into their fresh water. So it's not that the land's going to disappear, but they've lost their water. They're your neighbour. They're our neighbour. They need loving. They deserve loving. Christians have to care about this. We have to be in it. Now, there's debate about what's the best way forward. And that's a legitimate debate. Uh, Philip Adams is this radio commentator I listen to, Australia's best-known atheist probably. And he quoted this man once. I sent him an email once asking him could he remember who it was and he couldn't. Well, he says this, For all of life's problems, there's always a simple answer. It's just nearly always wrong. And I think there's a truth in that. We live in the, in the era of slogans and... You can summarise whole positions onto a bumper bar, you know, some sort of sticker. These are complicated issues where we need to argue and argue sensibly and carefully. I used to be very cynical of the precautionary principle. You know, the principle that says, listen, if this is true, and, you know, it's hard to dismiss the work of the IPCC, etc., because it just is. I mean, it, when you read it and see who's on it, it's very hard to dismiss some of this work that they've done. The precautionary principle says, if there's a fairly good chance of something terrible happening... In terms of ordinary risk management, you'll do something. Uh, so, I want to suggest to you as you get old like I am, find a doctor with small fingers. Because at about my age, they begin to want to check your prostate out. 
and they do it in a way where it's handy to have a doctor with smalls. I didn't check that out when I checked my doctor. He's good in every other area. Right. Now, why do we have stuff like that happening? Right, because in the end, you're nuts if you don't. Prostate cancer is the biggest cancer killer in the world. I'm not at all anxious about it, but I'm just... It's, that's, what, that's the fact of the matter. So to not... Oh! That's only kidding. <laughs> I will wind up. Uh, but there is this precaution that says, if we don't act, and what seems to be the consensus of most scholars, but not all, the repercussions will be terrible. If we do act, and those, the, the consensus is wrong, it doesn't necessarily have to be terrible. Frankly, anything that's able to clean the air up and clean up the waterways is probably going to be good and worth doing. It's inconvenient. It will cost us. I'm going to throw out four words and then we'll have questions. Some of the other things that are helpful that come up with this is it, it reintroduces us to the world of the real. There is a very common dogma that says truth's just in your head, it's just personal. We look at this and we no, there's actually truth that's true whether you believe it or not. And so a whole lot of people who otherwise say, oh, there's no such thing as truth, they don't really believe that when they come to this area. They know there are some things that are real whether you believe them or not. It's a helpful test in that one. It reminds us of the fact that fear can be good for you. Christians are often not for talking about the judgement to come and the reality of hell because Jesus does. They don't make us frightened. Why not? If there's a real danger of global warming, of a tsunami coming up to your beach, if you love people, you frighten them. It's wicked beyond belief to try and frighten people deliberately about what you know isn't true. That's manipulative. The real fear, evil, which lies behind all this, and the great four-letter swear word in Christianity, L-O-R-D. We live in someone else's world. When Christians say Jesus is Lord, when he says all authority in heaven and earth is mine, he's saying this world does not belong to you. We're a tenant, a blessed, lucky tenant in someone else's world and it matters to him, therefore it matters to Christians. Okay, sorry I went a bit injury time. Any questions? Now here's the problem. Try and make sure it's a question and not a long statement to say the stuff that you think I should have said without please comment. Okay? So do, but do throw in a question. Be as rude as you like. We've, we've skipped over a lot of stuff past. Go for it. I'll ask myself a question. You're careful. Yeah? I would think the first thing would be to gather information. I mean, even to read the Herald, or you can read, I, know my, I never read it, I've stopped buying it years ago. I mean, just buy, buy, and actually read what the various policies are that the opposition and the government are putting up, and try to learn what some of the key phrases mean. It's one of those arguments like the J curve, they began to use this thing years ago, the J curve, and I didn't know what the J, I must have missed it when they explained it. For years I forgot the J-curve and I didn't know what the J-curve was but I, I think I was in favour of it. But, um, <laughs> but so I, think just, I think we actually need to get information and, and to write to politicians about the issue. 
we, we had a, humans had a major victory with those CFCs that were damaging the ozone layer. Uh, this, it's, it's recorded quite well in the chapter of this guy's book, Tim Flannery's book. We actually are repairing the damage we did. Uh, there are massive more skin cancers, particularly in the southern parts of New Zealand, Australia, South America, etc., because of the ozone layer. But we worked out what was going on, we worked out what we'd done, and it's being repaired. Governments and DuPont and these other big companies were very, very slow to get on board. They did it in the end because the public forced them to. We do get the government that we deserve in the end. I hope that hasn't skipped the question too much. Any other questions? I'm going to warn you out. You're all actually Homer Simpson. You're good at Homer. Thank you, that was actually here. I had that here. Thank you. Well, I skipped it. Um, one of the unique things about Christianity is it does not believe in a what people would call heaven, many of you will know this, where the body is left behind. God makes the creation, and Revelation chapter 21 speaks of God making a new heaven and a new earth where those who are in heaven will have a resurrection body like Jesus God is into restoring the broken creation, not just shafting it. So there's this strange thing where we do know in the end this world is going to be cremated, but it's going to be re recreated out of that stuff. Um, like Jesus' own body, completely transformed into his resurrection body, which was linked to but different from um, his body prior. And uh, you, see that you see God's way with Jesus, even if you don't believe in the miracles... Um, well, I think there's a very good reason, very good evidence that you should. Um, it's the only thing what Jesus is doing with his miracles. They're all restoring miracles. Well, apart from water into wine, which is just rollicking good fun of the wedding. Um, but what he's doing is he takes blind people and restores their sight. People whose arms are crippled and stretches them out. People who can't walk and heals them. Deaf people, people who can't speak. What Jesus is doing is saying, this is what God's on about. He's not on about shafting the physical world. He's on about restoring it and making us more thoroughly human. The Greek idea and the Hindu and the Buddhist idea is fundamentally the spirit escaping the physical. That is not Jesus' view at all. So we've got this funny view of knowing, yes, in the end, we're all heading up to much more catastrophe, much greater catastrophe than the worst scenarios of global warming. That is, you and I will stand before God and you'll be judged for your sins. Sins against his creation, sins against the poor, Sins in the basic sin of saying to God, I'll play God, thanks very much. Now, that is the most terrible apocalypse that's coming towards us. But the other one needs to be dealt with as well. So Christianity has this both and thing going. The physical matters. That's why wherever Christians go, you know the two institutions, we start churches, but the other two things that we do, have done for the last 2,000 years, we start schools, because we're really committed to the brain, and hospitals. We got that from Jesus. Yeah. Um, how do you think that the Christians should feel more acting um, when green technologies are having an impact on the livelihoods of humans now, uh, but that we spend more lives in the future? Should we care more about the future life if we want to be affected now? Yeah, that question about securing the future at short term costs. 
The most dangerous people in history, as far as I read it, this is, you know, speaking now as a 54-year-old, know nothing, but as far as I read history, the most dangerous people in history are utopian dreamers. Right? The horror that came through Marxism. And, I'm, you know, I, all of us, well, many of us flirted with Marxism at various times, but in the end, you know, Stalin and Mao Zedong and the guy in Cambodia, they make the Inquisition look like a bunch of pussycats the way in which they butchered their own people by the millions and they make, they make Hitler look like a joke. It's people who say we, we can suffer in the short term because we're going to get to the workers' paradise. It doesn't matter the pain now because we're going to get to some... Those are the murderers big time and they really do make the Inquisition look like a pack of schoolgirls and schoolboys because I can't be sexist. Schoolgirls meaning harmless and nice and sweet, <laughs> not made of puppy dog's tails, um, that sort of stuff. Uh, I think we can say yes... Certain sorts of industry may be in trouble. Workers, say the aluminium industry, which is the one that gets massive help from us, they, they, pay two, they, they pay a much smaller cost for their electricity than we do, massive polluter. It may be worthwhile saying, go offshore, go on, rack off, we're not going to do it here. In which case, I think we, who live in the city, need to protect the workers who've just lost their jobs. A tiny handful of honest working men and women so it, it will mean us paying more tax. It will mean us not being able to go on holidays uh, because we're paying more tax in order to make this terrible transition. Um, yeah, I think it is worth doing that. But we will all need to pay for it. This nonsense of, of people in the city saying it should all change, but it's actually the farmers who are going to suffer terribly in, in some of the plans that we've got. That's, that is not loving our neighbour. We've always got to say we will carry the burden. If you don't, you want to start writing apologies to your grandchildren already, really, because it, it will probably, they'll probably want to know, what were you doing when this discussion was going on? I think I should call it a day. I'm happy to hang around if you'd like to uh, ask questions or push me on things, and thanks for your time.